Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon. I'm here with my esteemed colleague, now operating at a higher brain level, Mr. John Kaplan. Cap, good morning. Good morning, brother. How are you? I'm good. You're all right? I'm doing good, buddy. Doing good. Hey, Cap, our next guest was the CEO of American Internet, which was acquired by Cisco. Then at Cisco, he was the VP and general manager of network management. When he left Cisco, he became the CEO of Connected, which was eventually acquired by Iron Mountain. Bob then became the CEO of Iron Mountain for almost seven years. And for people that don't know, Iron Mountain is a giant company focused on information protection. We're going to ask Bob more about that later. Had 20,000 employees in 38 countries. After Iron Mountain, Bob moved on to become the CEO of Vericode, which was acquired by the very large PE firm, Toma Bravo. Now, Cap, Bob is the only person that I know that's been struck by lightning (laughs) and has lived to talk about it. We're going to ask him about that. But today, Bob sits on the boards of Fairwinds and BitSight, both focused on security, and on the board of ThoughtWorks, which is a global IT consulting company. Cap, please help me welcome a very interesting person with a vast degree of experiences, both large and small, Bob Brennan. Hey, guys. Bob, it's great. It's great to see you again. Thanks for being with us. Good to see you, Cap. Good to see you, Mac. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. So, Bob, let's jump in. You know, you've been there. You've done that at a lot of companies, both small and large. You know, incredible growth at Iron Mountain. Then you led a smaller company, Vericode, to its acquisition by CA. Now you're helping other companies do the same. Can you talk a little bit? We're going to go back to you as, you know, CEO. But right now, can you talk a little bit about the way in which you help smaller companies overcome some of the obstacles that you know you saw in your experiences also running companies. Well, I you know I think uh, we had this conversation a little bit uh, when we last met uh, Mac in that you know you got to keep people from themselves, right? It's really easy to over-identify with whatever you're doing and say you know we've got a tiger by the tail or you know uh, I always. Uh, I always think of the the dog chasing the fire truck, like that's fine. But then when you have a fire truck in your mouth, what do you do? Right. And, and uh, so to me, it's about just holding up the mirror the way people, I'm very grateful that enough, enough people in my career held up the mirror to me saying, you sure you want to chase that fire truck or now that you got it in your mouth, what do you want to do with it? Uh, and so that you keep uh, people from getting over optimistic or over pessimistic because it's a thin line, right? Like a thin line between Saturday night and Sunday morning that exists between fear and greed or optimism and pessimism. And uh, you, you, you want to stay as balanced as possible because it's probably not as good or as bad as you think. 
Yeah. And some of that, Bob, could be almost to what's going on today, where Meta, for instance, made this giant bet, right? You know, almost like bet the company versus going after the fire truck, but going after the fire truck in a very maybe smart or more incremental way. You know, yep. have you seen that in your time as, you know, CEO or, or as director? Yeah, well, I think in the case of Meta, um, he got to bet the company because he's got voting control of the entire show, right? And and right. for some at large, should he? Question mark. I don't know. Um, so he can't really be helped. For, like, it's up to him to keep himself from chasing the wrong things. Uh, I, I don't know if that's healthy. I think you want to have people around you that are going to be supportive, but clear eyed about like when you're off or when you're wrong and can, you know, say, Hey, wait a minute. So you don't end up betting the farm inadvertently or, you know, chasing the wrong truck. If we really kill this metaphor. <laughs> yeah. But the CEO of the job, like, you know, that you had, that can sometimes be a lonely job because there could be a lot of people whispering in your ear about what to do. And at the end of the day, it's your decision as to what to do. So how did you keep your balance as a CEO, you know, to, to make sure that you were making the right decision? Did you have people on your team that helped keep you straight or how did you do that? Oh, yeah. So I would. Um, well, there was a lot in that question. First, I always felt like I was in a good spot as a CEO when my team thought I was being too aggressive. And my board thought I was being too conservative. When nobody was happy with me and my plans, I felt like I was directionally correct with my plans. Mm. Um, and to your point, though, I've had a few mentors on boards um, that have done a really good job keeping me from myself. But it's really been uh, the people that have reported to me and gone on to do great things that. You know, I wouldn't be a CEO if it wasn't for Tom Axby at American Internet, which you mentioned. Um, uh, I had so many people at Cisco help me because I didn't know what I was doing there when it came to network management. To, to have the help I did from John Clancy at Connected, who ran a supermajority of the company uh, and then ran our digital business in Iron Mountain. He runs all the ops team at PSG today. Uh you know, Sam King at, at Barracode, I didn't know application security and she was, you know, made sure I was rooted in understanding the, the problems our customers face. So I think most of the leadership I've received has been from people that reported to me where we were in the trench together and uh, they were willing to commit to making me more effective and being very candid with me in the process about I don't have pedigree. Right. So I networking, storage, security, like that sounds sounds like very topical areas, but it's not like I was an expert in any of them. Mm. Yeah. So you had people around you that weren't afraid to express their opinion. And then Quite contrary, sometimes yeah. I would say, listen, I'm really I don't need more feedback today. <laughs> <laughs> So talk about the, you know, as the CEO, talk about maybe some of your big lessons on people management. Can you talk about one or two things that you think you've really learned that you would share with other people as far as people management as a CEO? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's the right question. Um, I would say as a CEO, and especially if you're scaling something in a high growth environment, which I think is the your, your listener, generally speaking, right. uh, is that 
If you have the wrong person in a leadership position, you have to back her or him while they're in the position. So when you realize they're not a fit, recognize that there are going to be unintended consequences that occur between when you come to grips with that realization and then take action on it. So if I have to support somebody as a VP because I'm not ready to make the change for whatever reason, including like my own reticence or misguided benevolence, whatever it is, uh, that person then goes and fires somebody that I know is really good for the company. Mm. And, and that turns your pillow into a bag full of demons because you're using people up. And the thing I would tell you, especially if you're earlier in your career, is that there's a cumulative effect of those. You don't lose those. Those, that those demons stay in your pillow forever. Um, on the uh, positive side, I, to me, it's about stretching people, right? The, the, you guys have such a legacy coming out of PTC. I never worked with PTC in my career, but I've done a lot of work with Chris Reisig, Ed Jennings, Mike McGinnis, John Hammond, right? The legacies that you guys created of just athletes, because when I look at, you know, Ed and Mike are partners over at QuickBase. Uh, uh, and, you know, Hanlon ran one of the biggest sales forces in the history of tech. Uh, Reisig's got an unparalleled record track record of early stage startups. So it's not like one thing came out of PTC. There was an athleticism combined with a optimism that I'd like you guys to talk a little bit about that. And, and how do you, was that something you were setting out to do or was it just an output of a system you had? Like, what was the story there? I think it was probably both, Bob. I mean, it starts with recruiting really good people. And then at PTC, one thing we did, we were training people nonstop. So we were training them when they came on board. We were training them every quarter. Um, and there was no, and it was highly competitive. So if you felt like you were an A player and you looked to your left and you looked to your right, there was other A players and you always felt like you had to pick your game up. And I think that drove a lot of people because again, it starts with recruiting. That's either in your blood or it's not in your blood. So that yep. competitiveness came out and it just forced you to, to up your game time and time again. And, um, and then there was, it was a no excuse environment. Uh, people used to introduce themselves at, you know, national sales conferences. And you might say, Hey, I'm Bob Brennan from Boston, Massachusetts. And I've been here for 12 quarterly contracts because it was, it was, uh, you know, you either performed or it was time to go look for another job. Yeah. And I think what some people thrived in that and other people didn't thrive in that environment. And I think that that extended, um, into people's careers as they became, leaders um and they started to recruit really good people understand the value of training people over and over and over again and developing people to bring the best out in them yeah the other thing that, that i like about each of them even though they're uh, very different what they have in common is a high objective view of performance right as opposed to a subjective view relying on the false poetry that comes out of, you know, uh, a persuasive salesperson, they're looking at data and then you don't have to necessarily be punishing. You can just say, let the data do the heavy lifting and let the inquiry do the heavy lifting. Yeah. And those, and those people actually, you have to watch it when you do try to hold them accountable because they're putting so much pressure on themselves that 
if you're putting a lot of pressure on them, then you're already beating up somebody that's already been beat up because they beat themselves up so much. Which I think is, I'm glad you bring that up, Mac, because I think it's a, uh, a fatal flaw that I see over and over again in what are otherwise very promising executives or potential executives that they grind themselves down to, to, to the bone. Uh, and I'm always reminded of like, you know, that we remember when we were flying commercial all the time and they say in the event that the cabin loses pressure, put your mask on first. And I think there's yeah. a tendency for ambitious executives, especially those earlier in their career to not do that, to serve themselves last and, and to beat themselves up when it's really not serving uh, the, the people they work for, the people that work for them, their customers, their family. Uh, I, I think you want to have hold up the mirror and be honest with yourself about screwing things up because it is a game of misses business. Um, but then like let yourself off the hook too. Once you're, you know, just take that on board is don't do it again, but like, let you let it go unless unless you personally use somebody up in which case you should feel like shit um yes you know the yeah. rest of it i've had many conversations bob with people where i had to basically i can't countless conversations with leaders where i had to tell them if you don't take care of you nobody else is going to take care of you and if you lose sight of you then you're no good for anybody on your team you're no good for you and you're no good for any of your team members you got to take care of you yeah. And then you get in distress and bad behavior results. Right. That's when you find good people talking down to other people. And that's where I get exercise, because I don't think there's if you have the right standards in place, there's no reason to talk down to somebody else or talk up to them for that matter. But like you, you, the system should work. Yeah, I think that's a um, I think that's a really <clears throat> fine line. And it's really related to your previous question about PTC. I think that um, one of the things that amazed me about my time there was the, um, the, it was one of the greatest performance cultures, maybe in the history of, of technology. It was, and I don't say that as a braggart because I was a part of it. I didn't create it. I was just a part of it, but the, um, the, the culture, the character of the organization was based upon unbelievable accountability. Um, and, you know, the results were incredible. So like 43 straight quarters of never missing the number to Wall Street, there was that not only did you want to perform and you were, it was a great example of meritocracy, you didn't want to let your, the rest of your organization down. So you asked the question, Bob, about like, what was it there? That was one of the things that I think was just really incredible. There was such a, 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 a personal identification with accountability. Um, it was amazing. And then John's earlier point, which I really think our listeners have to tune into, we had a personal responsibility for recruiting. And so when you talked about the downlines, like the parcels and the Walsh's or what have you, you were actually... Um, if you made your numbers but didn't recruit, you wouldn't get promoted in the company because of what you guys have highlighted with those, what, what we used to call downlines. Like, who who are you responsible for? Who did you bring to this organization? And when you create a culture around bringing great people to the company, 
the character of the organization really just uh, it takes on a it just highlights just kind of a, a, a an incredible um, an incredible character of a company. It's not that we weren't allowed to use recruiting firms. It was the more intimate you were in the recruiting process, the more intimacy you had with these relationships of people that you brought into the company, the more you helped them develop and, and move on to other things in the company. That for me was the secret sauce of, of PTC. And that's why Bob, you, you mentioned these great, like, like when I first met you, I met you through, I think I met you through Mike McGinnis and, and, yep. uh, and then through Chris Reisick and then through, I mean, these people that you're talking about and you're highlighting and John Hanlon and John McMahon, um, there's a, just a common thread of, of character of those individuals, which is really, really powerful. So that's my take on it, I think. Now, but I would like to ask you a question. The fine line you're saying, because what we all do is we all look, you know, 10 to 20, except for McMahon, we all look 10 to 20 years older than we actually are because we were so hard on ourselves. And I've heard you, you make a, you make a comment. Like I heard, I read this somewhere. You said, if you talk to your friends, the way you talk to yourself, uh, you might not have friends. Could you give us a little bit more, give us a little bit more detail around what you mean there. Well, it's not my line. I heard it on a podcast in the middle of the night and it choke chained me awake. I was trying to fall asleep and I heard that line. And I'm like, wow, it's true. Uh, and why we let that dialogue with ourselves be so self-destructive is an interesting question of human psychology. But if you think about the amount of energy it takes to go from talking down to yourself and then talking up to your loved ones and your colleagues and being a positive influence on them, the context switching alone is exhausting. So if you yeah. can interrupt that thinking and just say, listen, let's be honest about the fact that I screwed this up, but put it in a box over here. It is a game of misses more than it is hits. You might've hit all those quarters in a row, but there were a lot of mistakes, intra quarter, intra deal, a lot of deals. Oh, no. you know, there, there were a lot of mistakes that go into it. Um, and there's just, there's no usefulness to beating yourself up that, you know, I, so if I could do it all over again, I would have spent a lot less time, uh, uh, trying to impress anybody, which, you know, especially when I was younger, I did a lot of that. Um, but, uh, I, I would do my best to exercise this whole notion of, uh, beating yourself up because it's just useless. How do you balance that, Bob, with the with the accountability piece? Because when you spot it in somebody that's working for you and you're you know, you want to make sure that people understand what's expected of them, that they have a high level of attachment to performing. How do you balance that feedback of, you know, not piling on, so to speak? So to me, it's uh, I don't let's say we were just doing a presentation for a big, big deal, however big a deal you want to make it. And uh, the meeting went like hell, right? You can walk out of there saying, John, the meeting went like hell. Or like, how do you think that meeting went? What's the matter? What's wrong? Like, why weren't we ready? Like, what, what happened? And then like, you, you'll tell me either something happened or it'll become clear that your heart's not in it or whatever it might be. 
But then, you know, that's this, the, the, those are the moments about in all this remote work that we're doing today, because that's the serendipity that comes from like standing there in the parking lot of wherever we were making that pitch saying, are you okay? Yeah. Because we both know the meeting went like hell. Right. And it's, and it's catching yeah. it in that moment and saying, how do you think it went? But the other thing that's really important, especially to sales leaders out there is to the extent that you have subjectivity in the system, you know, that's a, a real, a big red flag. If you can have an objective approach to understanding what are the metrics that are required for success and then what are the behaviors required for success and you can objectively rank your team, you don't have to bust chops. Accountability takes care of itself because I see where I am in the stack rank. I know exactly where I stand. Yeah, we actually asked people how they describe your leadership style, Bob, and they said that you were ruthlessly candid, but at the same time, you had a very strong sense of compassion. So they described you as a balanced leader. Well, uh, I kind of want to say thank you, but I kind of feel like a little backhand in there. I I guess ruthlessly candid is tough because ruthless is a tough word. Um, Yeah. Uh, I think the, I think that the the issue there, John, is that I'm, I'm ruthless if it's about your behavior, right? So like, if you're just like punishing people and not pulling, pushing when you could be pulling, right? Being pessimistic when you could be optimistic, coming into a room and taking the energy out of the room versus giving energy to the room. That's when I'm ruthless. I'm like, this is not working. This does not work. Or you know that person so well, like the meeting you were describing in the presentation, you just knew something was wrong because you knew that they weren't up to their own standards. But when when people start taking the energy from the other people around them, uh, Mac is when I get ruthlessly candid. I'm like, this isn't working for me. Uh, Your approach, talking down to people, walking into a room and making everybody feel like shit whatever it might be, pitting people against each other. That's when I get ruthlessly candid. Um, it's interesting. I was once interviewing for a public board and the chair asked me what I was like at my worst. And I was like, when somebody gets muscular, I respond in kind, which is not exactly the right response, but it is my response. I just, I, I don't, I don't think there's any need to beat people up. If you have an, if you have precise prioritization and an objective view to understanding a function's performance, you should be able to let positive inquiry do the heavy lifting. And, and then I can see Bob's at the bottom of the stack, Frank. Bye-bye, Bobby. Like, you're, like we know that the bottom leaves. So it's okay. And it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I might be a better fit somewhere else. Right. Right. Bob, let's talk a little bit about Iron Mountain for people that don't know. Can you explain what Iron Mountain does for customers? Sure. So Iron Mountain, um, I've, well, I've been out of there for 11 years, uh, 12 years. Uh, so Iron Mountain is a company that was founded in uh, the early 60s, I believe. Uh, so it's been around for a long time and it was a roll up of physical storage facilities Uh, mostly for when we were keeping paper-based records. So whether it was your medical records, your mortgage, 
biopsies that you had in a, in a hospital. Um, we would store these uh, most important records uh, in facilities around the world. Then as people put that stuff on computer tapes, we would store the computer tapes in climate controlled facilities and bring and have a logistics business of bringing these records back and forth to you as you need it. Um, great company, uh, a, a real genius of a, and a, ni- a, a really nice guy, uh, Richard Reese, built the company from $3 million to $1.8 billion when they acquired our company, Connected, which was a very early player in SaaS-based backup. We backed up and archived information from PCs in the cloud before it was even known as the cloud. We called it online backup. Um, and Iron Mountain had been a roll-up of 250 acquisitions. Uh, a, a brilliant, yeah, roll, lots of little acquisitions, a couple of big ones. And uh, Richard asked me to help him roll up the roll-up. And uh, we did that together, me as COO, him as uh, CEO. Then I succeeded him. Um, and uh, it was what I loved about it is we had uh, we had 20,000 uh, on the team when I left, but 13,000 of them were blue collar workers. And you could change their lives by, by outperforming our expectations, because just a little bit on the m- margin makes an awful lot of difference in their lives. And we were able to move up how much they got in variable pay and benefits over time. And it, and it was a real home for people that otherwise would have um, struggled at that end of the economy. So I love that part of the job. Uh, being a public company, not so much. I just, it wasn't for me. I really like running small software companies. So that's why I went from Iron Mountain, you know, you'd be expected to go run another S&P 500 company. And I couldn't have driven fast enough in the other direction. I, I didn't like <laughs> Right. Well, at Iron Mountain, you had a run in with uh, activist investors, right? Could you tell us a little bit about how you maneuvered through that scenario? How I, <laughs> that's a funny way to put it, Mac. Uh, how I maneuvered is I put myself in a cannon and then like shot myself out of it. So, uh, <laughs> actually, uh, what's interesting about let's, let's back up a little bit activism in general right, is like we're going into the midterm elections tomorrow. And, you know, all the noise comes from the far right pole and the far left pole when most of America is in the middle. And and, and, an activist in a stock can take just a very tiny position in a stock, a couple percent, and then put out a um, hypothesis around how you can uh, dramatically increase the value of that stock following their recommended changes. The issue is... Um, well, one, it's not entirely invalid. These are smart people, right? Their hypothesis isn't like illogical. Uh, but two, it puts you on your back feet because it's not your strategy. And they spring it on the internet and you're left answering with your team, your board, your uh, investors. Well, why wouldn't you do what they're saying? So you're, 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 you're basically fighting their fight. And it feels weird that you can take just that small a position in a company and really change its agenda very, very quickly. Um, so it, it wasn't my favorite time. It wasn't my favorite time. It, you know, the, I think the board handled it well. Um, the company's done well since it did transition from being a growth company that was uh, to, to one more focused on returns. 
and uh, my successor's done a great job um, building the enterprise value of that company and uh, still supporting an awful lot of jobs uh, around the world. Did you see a did you see a major difference in your career of on this vein? I'm assuming um, Iron Mountain could be characterized as you know selling services Mm -hmm. versus um, versus products, if you will, like selling services that are enabling you know solutions and that type of stuff. What what were the major differences for you in services versus products? And that mentality of that, because I, I, what I've noticed is, is that it's, it certainly is a different kind of sale. And I, and I've also noticed that, you know, people, I think, underestimate the challenge of selling services from a product background. Is there, uh, is there any validity to that? There's a ton, there's a lot to unpack there, John. So a couple of things, one, um, well, at Iron Mountain, we had a quarter billion. John Clancy ran uh, Iron Mountain's digital business, which was 250 million, I think, generating 30% EBITDA. So we did have this um, dual personality that was only 8% of the business, but it took up a lot of mind share. And you could imagine that's yeah. how the activist also got in mind saying, you know, instead of investing in that, just give the cash back. Uh, as it yeah. relates to services, services to me, first of all, it makes you a better company. Um, because you have to be very sharp on your economics, right? You can't make, you can, you're not flying at an altitude economically that allows you to make a lot of mistakes, right? So you run up that business. The other thing is you're reliant upon inbound in a services business. And those that are listening that, that run services organizations know that your implied growth rate is your book to bill ratio, Right. So if you're booked to bill, if you're booking 1.5, what you're billing, that means you can look forward and say, I look, I'm looking at 50% growth going forward. And then you have to have ad headcount to service those customers. So it yeah. really requires a precision economically that's not required of a successful software company. So I really prefer software companies because it's a lot easier. Yeah. But I think it yeah. makes you a sharper business person on the services side. That's where I grew up. Now you... Now, you've also uh, read where you talk about precision of prioritization and you're giving us some background of, you know, being a CEO, being a board member, giving feedback, being a CEO, receiving feedback. You got activism going on and they're giving you feedback. I thought I read somewhere that you said precision of prioritization is what you look for in leaders. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, I'll tell you another choke chaining moment. I mean, I, you, you mentioned that, you know, if you talk to your, yourself, the way you talk to, you know, it's, it, I was uh, trying to recruit Ed Goldfinger to be our CFO at Barraco and uh, sitting him in one of the nice hotels in Cambridge there on the, on the Charles and said, Ed, I want to take you through our strategy because you're going to, and I knew I was competing with, I think it was HubSpot at the time or some other rock star company for his coming on board. Let me take you through our strategy. I really want to take you, you know, this, you're going to be excited. And he's like, I'll tell you what, Bob, why don't you just send me your uh, operating expenses? And then I'll tell you your strategy tomorrow morning on a phone call. (laughs) And And to me, it's the, it's a very simple, but elegant way of understanding 
are you really walking your talk, right? Because we can, it's very easy to be eloquent about what's important to the future of the company, but how you spend money is what's important to you today, where you're deploying your financial and human capital, right? And if that's congruent with what you say the priorities are, you're going to do just fine. And if it's incongruent, um, you're destroying shareholder value with whatever that incongruence is. And if it's a huge gap, if it's a huge gap, you're not going to rank well and, and you, you, you'll be making yourself available to another job. Now, Bob, when you sit on the boards of a lot of these startup software companies now, mm. is it sometimes too early to see those types of signs when you're evaluating whether or not you want to be a board member? Yeah, well, Mac, I don't know if you're like I, the mistake. I, I've been out of being a CEO for five over five years, and the first mistake I made was just wanting to please people. You just say yes, and and then you. Uh, I think the harder thing when you're early is how early are you? Right? Are yeah. you so early that you're not just going to get traction, uh, or are you early where you're going to end up? dominating a space if you execute correctly and being able to discern that. Like I find it uncanny that a guy like rice, could have like five early stage zero to a hundred hits like that. I'm like, how did you yeah. figure that out? Because my track record <laughs> early stage is a lot more uneven than hits. Yeah. So, so I don't have so a good are there certain signs you're looking for when you even Oh, Sorry, signs signs for, yeah. thing you're looking for yeah. is the market big to uh, mm -hmm. uh, do they have really smart people that have a hypothesis around what to build um, without being arrogant? Are they smart enough to be spending all their time with prospects uh, so that they can understand what they could monetize? Um, have, do they, have they been able to garner the interest of people like you guys, uh, or other, you know, experienced on, it, birds of a feather, right? So like, if you're, if you're looking at a group of initial investors that have all been reasonably successful over time, that's going to be more helpful than, you know, newbies. Uh, I was talking to somebody last week that was just really trying to start something from the ground up and really vague about it. Nice person. But I was like, so it's easier to see Mac when, when they're not going to succeed than when they're going to, I'd love to get your perspective on it though, because you've been um, in some of these moonshots from zero to, you know, infinity. So how, how do you think about it? Well, I always just go to what is the salesperson going to say when they're sitting across the table from the customer? So I go into that scenario and then I ask my three whys. And I usually disguise them when I go in to talk to a company that would like to have me as an advisor on the board. And I ask, so, you know, why, why do people have to have this product? Why do they have to have it? Now, why do they have to have it from you? Meaning what, what is your unique differentiation to solving the pains you know, that will, you know, that's why they have to have it. And the third is, why do they have to have it now? So I always am thinking about sales guy goes in talks to some customers and the customer goes, and it's so profound. They go, Oh, hold on a second. I got to go down the hall and grab somebody else. Right. That means that that pain is, it's an urgent pain and they got to solve it now. 
and they're willing to go down the hall and grab some other people because they've been looking for a solution like that for a long time. So for me, it just goes to the three whys. Then I agree with you. It also has to be a big market, a, a growth market. I like that the market's already established and something is really changing the market, like the cloud has changed a lot of markets. So um, those, those are the main big parameters that I'm looking for. And, and that's really helpful. Uh, and it's interesting. I have one of my companies, Fairwinds, has just been able to answer. They've always been able to answer the uh, the first two questions. And now, because we're entering into a recessionary environment, they're able to answer why now, because we saved them a lot of money. And that seemed uh, lackluster six months ago. And it's very topical today, which leads me to this. Like, could both of you weigh, let's the three of us talk about, how do you think about preparing companies that have had, let's take away the ones that haven't done well because they're going to struggle. Let's take away the ones that are doing great. because They're going to be fine. The, the companies that have the sawtooth and the uneven results, how do you think about preparing them for 2023 where it looks like a lot of the indicators are pointing down? Yeah, I think well, it depends uh, on the sides, but what happens a lot, Bob, is when I go in early on, they, they've never understood who their ideal customer profile is. So maybe they do can answer the three whys, but what they do is they, you know, let's say they're just hiring a number of people, sales reps in the United States. And what they'll do is they'll do what I call sprinkle the infield. They just say, well, we need one in LA and one in San Francisco, and one in Seattle and one in Chicago and one in Houston. And I think, well, why, how come? Have you ever done the work to understand what's your ideal customer profile? What are the use cases that you sell to? Who owns those use cases? What companies have those use cases predominantly? What industries are those companies in? And now let's, from that data, let's go back and think about where are the, the most of those companies in the U.S.? And now let's start to target those companies with people in those cities versus just sprinkling the infields. So what happens, I see a lot of times that they come out, especially in this past environment where they had so much money, they sprinkle the infield and they find out, oh my God, we're burning money. These sales guys aren't productive. A couple of them are in certain cities, but how come? And they think it's just because the salesperson is so good. Maybe they are, but they probably have a predominant number of companies with those use cases that just hit home for their product. And you, and you so guys I think a lot of it, it is re really understanding your customers and going after those and targeting them. I think it's, and you know, this, as soon as they, as soon as they start missing their numbers, they'll focus on any opportunity. And then you're so then now you're lost in the wilderness. Yeah. You should deal with yeah. I think, um, I, I think for me, like right now, if you look at, the, it's it's very, very similar to the beginning of COVID. It's very, very similar to 2008, 2009. Um, I think the people that do the best in uncertain times are the ones who go outside in immediately versus inside out. And it's counterintuitive because most people are looking for expense control, which you have to do. You're looking for, you know, conserving your cash, and, but when people go inside out during these times, I call it like they go hide in a cave and they wait for, they wait for the weather to pass and then they're going to emerge from the cave. And I found like 
the most elite companies on the planet, the ones that go outside in right now, because even if you understand and Bob, we've done work together, my company and your companies have done work together to get really nailed, you know, really laser focused on what we call the four essential questions. What problems do you solve for your customers? How specifically do you solve them? How do you solve them differently or better? And where have you done it before? No matter what, if you think you're really, really good at that messaging, it needs, it's going to change because your customers right now are all changing their problems, their challenges, what they're dealing with. Everybody's dealing with these economic uncertainties. And if I find the companies that are more focused outside and really, really focused on what's changing in the buyer journey, what's changing for our buyers, they are the ones that I call it land grabs. They are the ones that can capitalize on everybody else is hunkering down, conserving cash, pulling in the reins, going in the caves. There are the elite companies that get really, really close to this and they go do a land grab. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate uh, and grateful to be part of uh, BitSight's board, which is a security ratings company. And uh, going back to Max' uh, referenceability before, something on the order of 95% recommended to a friend, right? So it's just it, we're uh, inbreeding high achievers that are, are very optimistic. Uh, and we just took on, we basically did a private IPO with a major investment from Moody's. And that allows us to, I think, uh, take advantage of this time in a way that few can. Tell me this, like going into recession, Cap, uh, how and when, how does the force curriculum change? And when, if I'm a listener, when should I be thinking about like dialing you guys up in terms of size and scale? Because it's going to be a tougher time in 23. And just by way of um, full disclosure, I referenced Force because we used you at Veracode, but we also used you at Click, uh, uh, Tom Heiser's company, and uh, yeah. to great effect. I mean, uh, more effective than any other vendor I've ever worked with. So how should uh, – it's tough to say, oh, we, you cut consultants when you go into to a recession, right? You don't, you don't bring them on. How, how should I think about that as a CRO sitting in a situation where I can't even figure out what's the right growth rate for next year? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really, really good question because on the surface level, you would say to yourself, well, you know, if we're scaling back, if we're, you know, really watching our expenses, um, you look at expenditures with training and stuff like that. That's where companies typically start to pull back the reins. And it's not just because I'm in that industry, but I think that is a big time mistake. I, I think frivolous training and getting people together just to, you know, to do kumbaya and, you know, to, you know, drink beers and, and be together. I think that has to be scrutinized. But the things that we're the things that we're talking about is like we talked about those four essential questions. Like that's going to change your customers, their problems and challenges, and how they're responding to them, and with their customers. That's all changing right now. So you have to be really, really laser focused on what we call the answers to those four essential questions. Also, there's challenges in the way that you know 
buyers are going to buy. So Bob, the first thing that your sales organizations are going to experience is they're going to experience this. Well, everybody's delaying, you know, there's more people involved right. in the decision process. There's more signature levels. There's more, and you have to prepare your organizations for this because there's a whole bunch of companies out there that are just going into what, what sellers are, are, are misperceiving as stall mode. Basically what they're saying to you is you are not critical enough for us. You are not solving a critical enough problem for us. Therefore we're going to wait and see and so my message to the people always is if you're hearing that right now, Johnny talks about in his book, he, you know, he's got a fantastic book out there, which is called the qualified sales leader. Johnny talks about rise above the noise. And right now I think is the time to really double down, Bob, regardless of what size company you are is really doubling down and helping your people. What I call two things attaching to the biggest business issue facing your customers Great companies do that. Doesn't matter what size you are. You have to help your people attach to the biggest business issue facing your, facing your customers. And you do that by taking your technical differentiation and attaching it to business outcomes. And the companies that do that the best, that sit right in the middle between where those technical, you know, differentiations and technical solutions create business outcomes that help companies rise above the noise, that's a home run. Now, whether yeah. they do that with themselves, Bob, or whether they do that with companies like Forest Management, the bottom line is you have to do it, period. Yeah, just play that back at a slow speed because there's an MBA in that answer. Hey, Mac, let me shift a little bit and ask you about the psychology, right? You're going into a recession. Nobody's in a good mood. There's war, inflation, et cetera. Like, how do you think about the psychology of going after the prospect and, and getting them out of their mood? You mean just uh, on the rep side or the customer side? I'm thinking, well, I just think like person to person. Like, I'm trying to like say, all right, everybody's in a little bit of a lousier mood right now. How do I present myself with optimism without appearing Pollyanna-ish, right? It's like so, and and uh, you know, you have a very good drop on the room whenever you walk in. So, how do you? I, I just wanted to get your reflex on that. I think it's just by being more targeted, understanding that customer and their environment, and the more homework that you can do on them, on them, especially if it's a public company, reading the annual report, reading the 10K, the business risk sections you know, Googling their top executives, understanding what their initiatives are um, and who their competitors are and what their competitors are doing. I mean, sometimes we've been so prepared when we go into those rooms that I've literally had customers slam their fist on the table and say, where did you get this information? And we had to explain it's all public information, but it's that we did so much homework. So we differentiated ourselves from the competition. And so, like Johnny says, I think in this environment, you have to get above the noise. And for people that are the doubters, especially the salespeople, we say, look, it's not like they're going to start chopping up the desks and using them for firewood. They have money. They're just going to spend the money more, you know, optimally to be able to get the highest returns that they can. So how does it, now you have to think that you're not competing just against the competition, your own competition. You're competing against every salesperson that's selling anything. 
inside that organization. So one, how do you differentiate you? How do you differentiate your product? And how do you make sure that the return on your product is going to, is going to be a step above everything else that they're looking at? It's one of the things I picked up from uh, Tim Cato when he was working with us at Barracode was uh, a great line, one of those choke chain lines, which is that people don't argue with their own conclusions, right? And if they've reached the conclusion to your point, Mac, that you've done your homework, you're fully prepared, you spent your time asking questions, not making statements, given data, not opinions, they'll begin to reach the conclusion that this is a more effective way to spend money, especially in a scarcer environment that, 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 uh, I just love that, that line. People don't argue with their own conclusions. I love that. I love that too. And the last thing on psychology, Bob, and I want to hear your point on this because you've led so many organizations. One thing I'm seeing right now is communication is so tied to human behavior is so tied to the emotion of uh, emotion is so tied to performance. Like I'm always advising leaders, like, you know, you can panic privately uh, and, and square yourself away. But if you don't believe, why should anybody else believe? And I find that there's, when there's a problem with this, I find that, you know, when leadership wrings their hands, um, it kind of, I read somewhere you called it setting the pace. The CEO sets the pace. The leader sets the pace. The most, the the critical communication and leaders that I see right now are the ones that are stressing controllables and uncontrollables, being maniacally focused on what's controllable and having passion about that and minimizing what they can for what's uncontrollable. Could you talk a little bit about that, especially around the wringing of hands? I come on some of these meetings and I see a whole room full of people wringing their hands. And at the end, nobody feels any better than when the meet- they feel worse than when the meeting started. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, to extend the metaphor, you can't roll up your sleeves and wring your hands at the same time. Can you? No, you can't, can't do it. Can't do it. Right. So hand wringing isn't going to do anybody any good being nobody does anything better scared. I might think I run faster because I'm worried you're going to tackle me, but I'm, I'm not actually running faster. I'm just scared and running as fast as I can. And it's no faster. So I, I think the, um, as it relates to the psychology of this, to me, it's, um, people are naturally inclined to want to achieve. A, and it's a good motivation, although we know people that overamp on it, right? Uh, people are naturally in, inclined to want to bond with each other. And it's a primarily a very healthy motivation. We know people that are too familiar or too reclusive, but, you know, it's, bonding's a good thing. People want to learn. It's a good thing. But the most primal motivator we have is to defend. And it's really easy to get defensive in a business environment and create a defensive environment by putting people on their heels, displaying whatever fears you have uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, creating an environment that, to your point, takes energy out of the room. And to me, the antidote for that is I'm always listening to the leaders around the table saying, are they asking questions or making statements? Are they giving energy or taking energy? Uh, are, are they, to your point, are they focused on what they can, they can control 
and, you know, uh, not going on and on about the decline of democracy or some other bullshit that they they're not going to affect in this quarter. Not that that's old. I'm just saying it doesn't belong in a sales meeting. Powerful. Last question I have on this. Um, you know, you talk about um, you, you talk. I think your theme of really setting the pace, you know, being responsible, bringing energy to the room when you, uh, you know, versus taking energy. I love that. Like, what advice do you have with leaders? And sometimes it's so lonely, especially in times it can be very, very lonely. If you yourself are concerned about the future, you you're, and you're the leader, um, what have you done in your past to, you got to rely on somebody. Is it, is it, it's dangerous if it's board members, uh, wouldn't be. find that it shouldn't be, but tell us how you've done that. Like, who do you, who do you have? What should, what should somebody look for in somebody that they could confide in? Cause I've had some leaders just tell me, they'll call me and say, cap, I just need to blow off a little steam because I don't have anybody else to talk to. And I, that's a very, very lonely feeling. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I would. Um, when that happens, because I'm sure it does quite often, given the, the purview you have over so many organizations that you serve. Um, when that happens, just, you know, you don't have to name everybody's name, but take them through the roster of people that you have that are close friends, that understand what you're going through, that you call upon so that they realize it doesn't have to be lonely, right? There's a lot, one of the most unused questions in business, especially by males is, would you help me? And and invariably the answer is yes. Like there's a famous psychological study that says, if you're walking through a major train station or airport today and start to have cardiac arrest and just say, help, people are going to walk by you and you're going to die on that floor. If you point to any one person walking by, and even if that person's a mass murderer, you say, would you help me? They're going to stop and help you. So like recognize that you have a lot of people that reported to you in other environments. You guys, I'm sure call each other. If you get in a pickle, we need to, right. I, we, we've been mentioning names throughout this call. These are people that I call. And they're, they're my mentors and friends. They're not the people I reported to because I was always trying to impress them. And I still at some level probably am. So like, that's not who I go to for advice. I go to people I've been in the trenches with before. I don't call people that I'm in the trench with now and say, holy shit, what do we do? I call somebody that's not in that <laughs> trench and say, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. But would you yeah. And to think that, and to think that, you know, like my dad used to say, everybody has a story. And to think that other people aren't experiencing the same type of stress with these economic headwinds or whatever it is, uh, you just, you, you'd be making a mistake if you're thinking that other people aren't experiencing the same thing. So that's great advice. Great. Well, to your, to your father's point, another great question. The greatest questions in business aren't business questions. It's like, yeah. how can I, how can I be more effective for you, John? How, how can I help you? What can you do to make me more effective? Uh, what, what, what's the matter? Right. Are, are you okay? It's like, they're not business questions. They're just 
What, Human what's behavior. This, what, like, let's say that you, you throw, like, we walk into a meeting, it's going to be a positive meeting, but you're in a bad mood and you throw a rant on some issue. And I'm like, all right, John, what do you recommend? Love that. You got something like, what, what do you recommend? And it doesn't matter what industry we're in, whether it's services or software, somebody's in distress. They're like, this is bullshit. Okay, great. You probably have an idea behind this. What do you recommend? And if you don't, right. and if you question, come back to me in a couple of days with a recommendation, get with some of your, your, your peers and your peers and like, come back in. I agree. It's a problem. Love it. That totally resets the other person. Hey, yeah, Bob, it's like you, Johnny, I'm going to go ahead, that, Matt. John. No, Before ahead, you wrap, Johnny, I was just going to do it. And I, I don't even know if you recap. need to wrap. Yeah, you don't. I don't know if you need to, but Bob, can you talk a little bit? I mean, you were you were struck by lightning at one time. I mean, I've never spoken that's, to anybody else that's been struck by lightning. It's a little can bit. Can you of a share that though. experience with us? Yeah, but I struck is a little strong because there's somebody listening that was actually struck by lightning and lived to tell it. I didn't have a bolt go through me like in a cartoon. I was uh, I was having, <laughs> I was having a glass of wine at a, at our cottage on Cape Cod. And I saw a lightning bolt hit in the water. It looked really close. I have no way of telling you just how close it was. And then I felt it run through my body and I was holding a glass of wine in my right hand and the glass of wine exploded. So I think it exited that way. Um, and other than the sore shoulder, I was fine with that. I've gone through much worse than that. Although it's a good story. I think struck might be over. It might be embellished. I, I was, uh, and how, far, how far away were you from the water? How far away from, from the water were you? 500 feet. 500 feet. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And then, you know, electricity looks for the path of least resistance. So it was seeing that water, you know, on the other side of your body. And that's probably where it went, why it exploded the wine glass. Well, now I know, John. <laughs> there's, the, there's the engineer and McMahon coming out. <laughs> Johnny, do some rapid fire questions, brother. Yeah, Bob, you ready for a couple of easy rapid fire questions? Fire away. All right. How about your ideal day off of work? Uh, hike in the woods with the dog. A um, couple of calls with friends or colleagues that are good calls, not bad calls. Uh, uh, some time with uh, Andrea, just shooting the breeze, maybe watching a little TV. Uh, and, you know, if I can get in a boat ride or some golf or exercise, all the better. What kind of dog you have? Uh, a mutt. Uh, 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 name is Desi. It's Pyrenees, Border Collie, and Chow. Uh, great wow. dog, ninety percent wow. of the time. Diablo, ten percent of the time. <laughs> How about your favorite meal? Uh, whatever I'm having with Andrea tonight. Yeah. And how about you have a favorite movie? Uh, what genre? I like a any ton genre. Of, any genre. Well, pick one or two. Uh, I got to tell you, I love Sea Biscuit. I love Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I like mm. Chinatown with Jack Nicholson. I like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's. Yeah. So anything that yeah. uh, Wes, anything that Wes Anderson's done. If you've never seen the movie Moonrise Kingdom, 
what a feel good movie uh, about teenagers at a scout camp. It's just there. It's fantastic. Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. Yeah. I have to check that out. You have a best concert you ever been to? Yeah, you know, I was uh, very grateful. I was fortunate in college to be uh, working in nightclubs where I got to witness some of the greatest musical acts ever. Having said that, so I was backstage or side stage or, you know, right there. Uh, but despite all of that witnessing, the best concert I was ever at was in Forest Hills uh, before it became the U.S. Open Stadium, when it was Forest Hills Stadium in the last row. And it was late 70s, early 80s, whenever the Talking Heads came out with their Out of Africa album and they did that tour. And it was it blew me away, even though I was in the last row and I was used to being in the front row. Uh, That was by far the best show I've ever seen. I didn't even know they did concerts there. Interesting. And Bob, do you have a favorite charity you want to talk about or tell people about? So I'd love people to consider to the extent that um, you have time or money. I'll I'll mention, too, if that's okay. The Black Economic Council of Massachusetts or BECMA is a member network that's not unlike. Think about the networks that we have socially and how fortunate we are to have those social networks. Uh, Under Nicole Obi, the CEO of BECMA, they've set up a, uh, a membership network of black businesses to serve city contracts and to serve each other. And we're also beginning to find ways to get capital in their hands. So we'd really appreciate to the extent that you're making anybody's making donations out of their uh, donor advised funds or just in the kindness of their heart. That's great. The other is more than words, where if you're a um, if you're a ward of the state in Massachusetts, right, meaning someone wrong in life where, you know, your parents didn't raise you, the state raised you, you're made homeless on your 18th. More than words trains the kids to work in an online and physical book environment that's 50% uh, done through benefactors, the other 50% it stands on its own, so that when these Great. kids are 18, they're not homeless, they're working at Target, they're working at Amazon, they're working at you know local retailers. So those are two good ones off the top of my mind. We'll have to put that in the show notes, Bob. So Appreciate that. Sure, hey, well, those are awesome. Thank you so much. Johnny and I are really grateful to have you spend time with us and share your experiences. And I'm sure the listeners are also as grateful. So thank you so much, Bob. Thanks to both of you. And thanks for doing this. You guys could do anything with your time. This is a really good public service for you to provide. Bob, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much. And for everybody listening, thank you for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.